Ray Bradbury is in my top five writers ever to put finger to typewriter. Whether it's a story about men exploring Mars or time traveling to hunt dinosaurs or simple murder, it's always about something else. The setting is a bucolic 1950s American town. The drone of lawnmowers and peewee baseball games. Screen doors creaking and slapping shut over the distant tinkle of the ice cream truck. Flags lull in a lazy breeze as girls and boys jump to catch fireflies and bring them home in jars. Bradbury used such a setting to play out many of his most sinister pieces of non-speculative fiction. In several pieces, he called it Greentown, a substitute for his hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. But he made it clear that Greentown could be any small, mid-century suburban American town a universal locale that many readers will relate to, and an unexpected place for a horror story. Therefore, what better place? As an aside, I realize that below the surface of the idealized 1950s American scene was an entire culture that was not cozy or safe because of the color of their skin, where everyday mistreatment was the norm, not shadows left over from Jim Crow, but continuing in the subsequent decades getting a little better each year. That is not the horror story Bradbury writes about in Dandelion Wine, and in that sense, it is of its time. Small American towns have their boogeymen, partly influenced by writers like Bradbury and Stephen King, who use picturesque settings like King's Castle Rock as backdrops for tales of menace and horror. The key to good fiction writing, in my opinion, is to transport the reader to a new world, to take them someplace they've never been, or just see the normal world in a new way. I see the world differently after a good story, as if I've actually been to some new place. That's why I read, and I hope you get the same magic out of it. Not just to escape reality, but to add depth and wonder to our own lives. Bradbury is a master of wonder. Whether it's a story set in the ruins of an ancient Martian city or an unexceptional Midwestern town where a madman runs loose. The point of suspense stories, classic Hitchcock films, TV crime shows, cozy murder mystery novels set in small English fishing villages, is one unshakable thought. A faceless threat could be lurking just behind your perception, around the next bend as you walk home alone at night beneath the echoes of your own footsteps in the alley, crouching in the shadows of the hedges in front of your house. It could be anywhere. And before you know it, you're leaping up the front steps and fumbling for your keys, and once you're inside, you slam the door and lock it and wait. Someone inside says, Sweetheart, are you okay? You look like you've seen a ghost. You have Hitchcock and King and Ray Bradbury to thank for that. But Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine is not a great book, but it needed to be written for him to get to who he would become. It's fine for what it is, what they call a fix-up novel, consisting of a collection of short stories loosely linked together in a sequence that, eh, makes enough sense. But it's short stories, not novels, that made Bradbury a master on par with Alfred Hitchcock. Even Hitchcock said as much. Within the novel Dandelion Wine is a Bradbury story that is not about Martians or time machines or robot houses coming to life. It's a short story called The Whole Town's Sleeping, and it makes the whole thing worthwhile. For this discussion, we can toss the rest of the book, 
and focus on the story of a killer on the loose, where the women of Greentown, your town, are vulnerable and preyed upon by a phantom known as the Lonely One. An excerpt. And death was the Lonely One, unseen, walking and standing behind trees, waiting in the country to come in once or twice a year to this town, to these streets, to these many places where there was little light, to kill one, two, three women in the past three years. That was death. Dandelion wine. Quick diversion, but I promise it's related. This is really niche, but one of my guilty pleasures is listening to old radio plays, shows like Suspense and Escape. Think The Twilight Zone, but written for the radio. Suspense in the 1950s included such talented voices as Orson Welles, Henry Fonda, Humphrey Bogart, Bella Lugosi, Judy Garland, Vincent Price, Jimmy Stewart, Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Boris Karloff, Bob Hope, Burt Lancaster, Lana Turner, Marlena Dietrich, Ronald Reagan, Mickey Rooney, Tony Curtis, Lena Horne, Cary Grant, and Agnes Moorhead. Remember that name. I've always rolled my eyes at the dorky collectors of old memorabilia and comic books, but I think I've reached peak geekdom with 1950s radio dramas. But just imagine if, in the 2020s, every living Oscar-nominated actor comes together making 30 episodes of Black Mirror, written by the best living writers and directed by Tarantino and Scorsese and Nolan, gathered around a transistor radio to be whisked away into imagination by the best living suspense and horror writers, and for free, except for the cigarette and aftershave commercials. Tom Cruise smokes Winston unfiltered cigarettes because Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. I was fortunate to stumble upon the August 31st, 1958 broadcast of Suspense, The Whole Town's Sleeping, based on Bradbury's short story. The blurb is as follows. The famous story about the lonely spinster walking across a dark ravine at night with a killer on the loose. A small Midwestern town lying asleep in the moonlight of midnight. Could anything be more familiar, more peaceful, more safe? Certainly not unless Ray Bradbury is writing about it, for his is a typewriter of terror, and once again it has pounded out a tale not only calculated to keep you in suspense, but likely to cost you a night or two of sleep. The Lonely One has already killed at least 12 women in Greentown by the opening of The Whole Town Sleeping. Every mom and dad and kid, every vulnerable old lady is aware of the ravine in the center of town and the killer they call the Lonely One. We follow several older spinsters who had planned a night at the movies across town until learning that their friend, Eliza Ramsell, had been found dead and posed in the open moonlight that night in the ravine. One of the ladies, Lavinia Nebs, admonishes the others for being so silly to live in fear. She suggests they go to the movies anyway. The lonely one be damned. The other ladies find Lavinia's joking about the murders in poor taste and her decision to walk home alone through the ravine to be tempting fate. Lavinia scoffs and makes for the steep steps that lead down into the ravine. What was that? She hears the echo of her own footsteps clearly, but now there is something else. Another set of footsteps that disappears anytime she stops walking. 
She grows more and more convinced she is being followed and moves quickly through the dark green shadows where more than a dozen women have been found murdered. And she curses her hard-headed insistence to take this way home as opposed to the safer way under the streetlights. Soon she finds herself sprinting up the path on the opposite side, still waiting to be attacked by the lonely one. But she's catching her breath in front of her house, and there's no one around. The whole town's sleeping, if you will. She shakes her head, you silly girl, and descends the steps to her front door when, behind her, in the dark, someone clears his throat. Later in Dandelion Wine, the neighborhood boys see a body taken out of the Neb's house, and surprisingly, it is not a woman's body, but a man's. Lavinia had stabbed him with a pair of scissors. The local boys don't want to believe the lonely one is dead. After all, he was such a perfect boogeyman. It's also not surprising that the character of the lonely one was inspired by a real-life criminal who terrorized Bradbury's childhood hometown when he was six years old. Welcome to the evil section. Today we're delving into an intriguing subplot that has perplexed book dorks and investigators alike hidden within the pages of a classic novel that most people have never heard of, Dandelion Wine, by the legendary author Ray Bradbury. In this debut novel, Bradbury introduces a subplot that left many of us puzzled and haunted, and it is the best moniker for a villain I've ever heard, even creepier than The Shape in Halloween. If you read John Carpenter's screenplay, the character of Michael Myers was written as The Shape, not his name. But it's better than The Shape. Anyway, Bradbury's novel kind of sort of revolves around this character named The Lonely One. But there's something most readers don't know. The master of the macabre and the fantastic may have drawn inspiration from a very real, albeit obscure, criminal figure. A figure that struck fear into the hearts of residents in Bradbury's hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. Maybe you could call it Greentown. While Bradbury never explicitly mentioned a name, it was evident that the Lonely One was inspired by a real-life cat burglar who played a chilling role in the author's childhood. Oh, being scared to death in childhood. What a magical, creative haze we're in as kids. As a creative weirdo kid, everything was so intense, like loading your mind into a giant daydream slingshot to who knows where. You just better hope you're aiming at something fun and not something terrifying. Throwing Nightmare on Elm Street at a ten-year-old kid can be a big mistake. I speak from experience. I am an HSP, highly sensitive person, which I know sounds like some woo-woo scientific Deepak Chopra shit, but it was a revelation to me when I learned it. You're not actually a wimp. I've pulled people out of car accidents, chased away a mountain lion, been held up at gunpoint multiple times. But unexpected things, bad and good, hit way harder when you're genuinely an HSP. I should never have been exposed to what I'm about to tell you, but it was, as the song goes, nobody's fault but my own. My brother had a combination Halloween 13th birthday party at the same mansion where I took oral painting and piano lessons as a kid. I was nine years old. One room was dedicated to playing VHS movies on a loop, Halloween 1 and Halloween 2. I've always loved throwing an obstacle in front of myself just to see what happens, and this time, it wasn't good. I can't stress that enough. As the credits rolled from Halloween 1, I thought, you know what you just did, idiot? 
you just created for yourself two straight years of the worst nightmare ever. I knew this, and yet when Halloween 2 began, I sat in the same spot for two hours and just let it stream into me. My creative mind was forming electrical connections and haunted roads I spent years of therapy trying to bulldoze until I realized I could use them creatively. I wish I had known that early on. For the next two years, I would keep my bedroom window cracked even when it was snowing so I could hear Michael Myers if he came up my block. He never did, but I knew he would when I wasn't looking. My parents and I said prayers before I went to sleep every night that no knife-wielding psychopath would sneak into my house and into my bedroom at night. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep something something. Hold on, let me ask her. And for the record, she's getting Michael Myers mixed up with Freddy Krueger, but who hasn't done that? Oh my gosh. When our son was little, he unfortunately watched a movie he should never have watched called Halloween, I think it was. And he was so scared of that uh, guy, um, Freddy Krueger, I guess was his name. It was so long ago, I hardly remember the names, but because he has just such a sensitive soul, it really affected him tremendously. And so every night before he would settle down to go to bed, we had to say multiple prayers to keep Freddy Krueger out of our house, out of our neighborhood, protect our son, uh, can't let him get get to him. <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible uh eye-opener for us that she was such a sensitive guy. I couldn't go into a video store for two years because Michael Myers was on the cover of the display VHS tape. Michael Myers, the shape, my lonely one. But was the lonely one real? Check this out. Orville Wyant, not a great horror moniker, buddy. An unassuming fellow with a penchant for lawlessness or a striking resemblance to the character known as the Lonely One in Bradbury's novel. Though Bradbury never explicitly named Wyant, the parallels between the two are undeniable. In the late 1920s, Orville, an old railroad stoker by trade, embarked on a crime spree that saw him break into an astonishing 33 businesses. Gas stations were his usual target, where he lightened the load of many a till and swiped goods from store shelves. But what set Wyant apart from common burglars was the notes he left behind, signed with the ominous moniker, The Lonely One. Yes. His modus operandi was to leave behind three distinct letters. One was addressed to the business owner, a chilling acknowledgement of their misfortune, Another found its way to the local press, a sly tactic to ensure that his exploits received adequate coverage. The third and perhaps most unsettling note was meant for the police. A not-so-subtle prod urging them to improve their investigation prowess. This was 40 years before the Zodiac, but he was already zodiac -ing. Unfortunately for this crook, fortunate for Waukegan... Eight months into his audacious spree, Orville Wyant's criminal enterprises sort of hopped off the rails. In a daring break-in at a hardware store in Ray's quaint hometown, Wyant swiped a pistol but was suddenly cornered by the police. He faced a grim choice. Attempt to escape 
surrender under the condition that the Waukegan police would show him some leniency. In those days, law enforcement had considerable latitude in the treatment of suspects, especially of the Caucasian persuasion. Suicide by cop, or... Just then, in a desperate bid to avoid confrontation, he put the gun to his own head, threatening suicide. Like any crook caught in this situation, Wyant was probably aware that some rough handling awaited him on the way to the station. Think billy clubs. They call it the old wood shampoo. Nevertheless, he chose surrender. Once apprehended and his identity revealed, the press unveiled the full extent of Wyant's audacious spree, starting from February 1st, 1928. 33 businesses broken into and robbed, and to the police department's chagrin, the public found humor in the apparent ineptitude of the police in their attempts to thwart him, as pointed out in his letters. Think of the wake of fear left by an honest-to-goodness local boogeyman, the lonely one. After just over a year behind bars, Orville Wyant sought parole. Though Wyant had occasionally fired shots at the police, his actions on the night of his arrest were notably non-violent. Some heavy disses by police chief Tom Kennedy, who labeled Orville as nothing more than a run-of-the-mill punk, led to him being denied parole. There's one more connection of note that only makes sense in context of the Orville Wyant story. When the Lavinia Nebs character in The Whole Town Sleeping within Dandelion Wine, approaches the ravine alone at night, the killer is still on the loose, having killed that very night. Who does she run into on the street? One Officer Kennedy. And he's whistling. He offers to accompany her home, and Lavinia, strong-willed as ever, says, No, thank you. She'll be fine. Alone. He says, Okay. He tells her to holler if she needs any help down there. Officer Kennedy? Yeah. Here's an excerpt just because I love the way he writes. Lavinia Nebs walked alone down the midnight street, down the late summer night silence. She saw houses with the dark windows, and far away she heard a dog barking. In five minutes, she thought, I'll be safe at home. In five minutes, I'll be phoning silly little Francine. She heard a man's voice. A man's voice singing far away among the trees. Oh, give me a June night, the moonlight, and you. She walked a little faster. The voice sang, In my arms with all your charms. Down the street in the dim moonlight, a man walked slowly and casually along. I can run, knock on one of those doors, thought Lavinia, if I must. Oh, give me a June night, sang the man, and carried a long club in his hand. The moonlight and you. Well, look who's here. What a time of night for you to be out, Miss Nebs. Officer Kennedy. And that's who it was, of course. I'd better see you home. Thanks, I'll make it. But you live across the ravine. Yes, she thought, but I won't walk through the ravine with any man. Not even an officer. How do I know who the lonely one is? No, she said. I'll hurry. I'll wait right here, he said. If you need any help, give a yell. Voices carry good here. I'll come running. Thank you. She went on, leaving him under a light, humming to himself alone. Here I am, she thought. The ravine. I do like the book. I'm not saying that. 
I like the way it captures a young person's view on the innocence of summer and sunlight and hanging out with grandpa and all that stuff. But I could never really understand the meaning of this creepy subplot or why the author included it in the book at all. Every small town has its ghost story, its boogeyman, the thing that keeps kids awake at campfires. Bradbury never came out and said it, never gave a name, but come on. He wrote in the intro to Dandelion Wine, entitled Just This Side of Byzantium. Was there a lonely one? There was. And that was his name. And he moved around at night in my hometown when I was six years old, and he frightened everyone and was never captured. Obviously, the last part's not true. He had to have known that. True crime enthusiasts, literary aficionados, law enforcement, I think we can all agree that Orville Wyant's most extraordinary legacy remains the handiwork of someone else. In this case, his immortalization in the pages of a pretty good debut novel by a promising young writer, Mr. Ray Bradbury. Don't be scared. Subscribe to Season 1 for free in your podcast app. Then, be scared.